of you. Tobacco's gonna be the death of you. Ooh, yeah. And that morning of the 17th, one of the African-American men, James McArdle, who brought the tobacco leaves into the stemming departments where black women tore the leaves apart. He'd been sick, tried to go home. He was afraid to lose his job, and he had a stroke while he was working and fell and died pretty soon after that. It was a catalyst for people like Theodosia Simpson and others had been trying to organize a labor union at, at Reynolds. Who belongs in the labor movement? Resilient worker coalitions are often found at the intersection of labor and race. On today's show from the NC Labor History Revealed podcast, we'll hear about how North Carolinians formed multiracial coalitions to fight racism inside and outside the workplace, and how farm workers leverage such coalitions to overcome racist inadequacies in federal labor law to secure the largest union contract in North Carolina history. And on Labor History in Two, the year was 1982. That was the day that 11 women graduated from the New York City Fire Academy. They were the first women firefighters ever to serve in the city of New York. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. I'm Rick Smith. And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1982. That was the day that 11 women graduated from the New York City Fire Academy. They were the first women firefighters ever to serve in the city of New York since the department was founded in 1865. The inclusion of women firefighters did not come easily in New York. In 1977, for the first time, women were allowed to apply to be firefighters. Although many women had passed the written part of the exam, they were continually denied employment because they failed the physical test. The women sued citing discrimination. One of the leaders of the suit was applicant Brenda Berman. The federal district court in Brooklyn sided with the women. Not everyone was happy about the decision. A group of demonstrators came to City Hall before the graduation with signs reading, quote, I want to be saved by firemen. The Uniformed Firefighters Association also challenged the ruling. They tried to block the ceremony in the courts, arguing that training requirements had been changed to accommodate the women. Despite the legal challenges, the ceremony went on as scheduled. In his speech, Mayor Ed Koch said, quote, as all of us have known all along, bravery and valor know no sex. After the graduation, the controversy over women firefighters continued. The women often faced sexual harassment on the job and vilification on the editorial pages of the city's newspapers. Bumper stickers reading, quote, don't send a girl to do a man's job could be seen on the car bumpers of many male firefighters and at the city's firehouses. The women firefighters stood up to the harassment, testifying before the city council and holding street demonstrations to bring awareness to the discrimination. 
North Carolina's low union density today belies its rich history of worker organizing since the birth of the American labor movement in the 1800s. But a new podcast by North Carolina's Labor Federation, NC Labor History Revealed, aims to bring that history to light. We played episode one, which traced the roots of worker resistance, back to the first union in North Carolina, the Knights of Labor, in our September 4th show. Today, episode two, race. The history of worker progress in North Carolina is the story of overcoming systemic challenges like racism and facing down industry giants. For a long time, agriculture in general and tobacco in particular was king. Ladies and gentlemen, you stand at the threshold of a new era in smoking enjoyment. You are about to introduce one of the most dramatic advances in the history of the tobacco industry. That audio is from a cigarette commercial aired in the 90s for R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company. The company is one of the largest producers of tobacco products in the world, and it has its roots in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My introduction to R.J. Reynolds was through a boycott of one of the company's cigarette products, the Vius Electronic Cigarette. This past summer, I joined community members and agricultural workers to stand under the August sun in front of a Circle K gas station in Fayetteville, North Carolina. We stood behind handmade signs demanding that people boycott Reynolds' VU cigarettes until the company addresses worker abuses and its supply chain. These protests throughout North Carolina are led by FLOC, Farm Labor Organizing Committee, a union of and for farm workers. They're demanding that Reynolds come to an agreement with FLOC to ensure that the migrant farm workers who produce the tobacco and V-use cigarettes can collectively bargain to protect their rights. Labor organizing isn't new for the workers who produce the tobacco that Reynolds sells. The history traces back to another group of workers in 1943. We're warned to not let history repeat itself. And for workers, this can mean the same struggles persisting through generations. In today's episode, workers' fight for dignified working conditions can be traced to the same company exploiting different groups of people over the course of a century. This exploitation often hurts those the least protected by labor laws. And in our history, this often intersects with marginalized racial and ethnic groups. In 1935, Congress passed the National Labor Relations Act. As FDR signed the bill into law, he saw a future of, quote, a better relationship between labor and management by assuring the employees the right of collective bargaining. This act makes it illegal for employers to interfere with their employees' right to organize and join unions, although there are breaches of workers' rights under this legislation to this day. On the whole, this was a monumental step for most workers. However, this act excluded protections for public sector employees and agricultural and domestic workers who were disproportionately racial minorities. To resist these kinds of inequitable labor laws, 
that ignores some groups, workers have at several points throughout history focused on building multiracial coalitions. The idea is different groups of people demanding the same dignified working conditions equals power in numbers. In North Carolina, one of the most prominent unions to do this, United Tobacco Workers Local 22, grew out of the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company in Winston-Salem. Tobacco was a huge industry in the United States in general, but especially in North Carolina. The public perception of tobacco was markedly different earlier in American history. Now we see public health campaigns to try to limit tobacco consumption. But during World War I, the U.S. government was one of the largest buyers of tobacco. Soldiers fighting abroad got sent cigarettes as part of their rations. This trend continued into World War II. But the most important job for every member of the family is growing and harvesting tobacco. For example, everyone must go into the fields at topping time when the blossoms at the top of the tobacco plant are broken off to make sure that for the rest of the season, all the strength of the soil will go into the leaves. Knowing just when each leaf is ready for picking and fit for curing is one of the great secrets of raising good tobacco. There is an iconic quote by U.S. Army General John Pershing who says, quote, You ask me what we need to win this war. I answer, tobacco. Tobacco is as indispensable as the daily ration. We must have thousands of tons without delay. This underscores the economic power and political clout of tobacco companies like Reynolds. Even in the years following the war, tobacco was in heavy demand. Producers had high economic incentives to increase tobacco production. However, the strain for meeting the generally high levels of demand for tobacco fell on the workers. Fast forward to 1943. R.J. Reynolds in Winston-Salem was firmly the largest cigarette company in the world. Now, we're in a different era in American history than the mill towns we explored in the last episode. But similar practices existed, as in the city was dominated by a couple of big companies that had control over multiple aspects of workers' lives. Robert Chick Black, a man who worked at R.J. Reynolds, recounts his experience in an interview archived in the Southern Oral History Program. He describes Winston-Salem and the antagonistic relationship between black and white workers at Reynolds, who were divided by management in an attempt to reduce pro-union sentiments. Now, this company dominated Winston-Salem. They had representatives on every government body from the city council on up through Congress. They had a kingdom of their own. Blacks hating whites, whites hating blacks. Both blacks and a great majority of the poor whites lived in rat-infested houses, and they couldn't pull themselves out of those conditions because of the economics that Reynolds controlled. And there were no ground for the whites and blacks to sit down and discuss economic problems because they had to face the race question. Black and white workers were both subjugated by R.J. Reynolds, but racial divisions prevented a robust, unified opposition to Reynolds. Black workers were mostly placed in the pre-manufacturing part of the plant, while white workers worked in the manufacturing sections. 
all the foremen, or supervisors, were white men. This, along with the fact that white workers generally had higher wages, made building solidarity across racial groups extremely difficult to the advantage of Reynolds. The strike that would lead to the eventual formation of Local 22 was spearheaded by Black African-American women like Miranda Smith and Theodosia Simpson-Phelps. I talk with Dr. Robert Korstad, Professor Emeritus of Public Policy and History at Duke, and author of Civil Rights Unionism, Tobacco Workers, and the Struggle for Democracy in the Mid-20th Century South, about the spark that lit the formation of Local 22 at R.J. Reynolds on a muggy summer day, June 1943. In that morning of the 17th, one of the African-American men, James McArdle, who brought the tobacco leaves into the stemming departments where black women tore the leaves apart. He'd been sick, tried to go home. He was afraid to lose his job, and he had a stroke while he was working and fell and died pretty soon after that. It was a catalyst for people like Theodosia Simpson and others had been trying to organize a labor union at, at Reynolds. And so they got most of the women workers to agree to sit down at their machines and say they wanted to have conversations about better working conditions, better pay. And from that sit down, within uh, five or six days, increase union membership from a couple dozen maybe to five or six thousand people. The intersection of the labor and the civil rights movement wasn't just limited to Local 22 and Winston-Salem. Eighty miles east in Durham, these two movements converged when both black and white workers were part of the large tobacco and textile industry. Labor and civil rights leaders unified workers under a common working class identity following an extremely segregated period during World War II. Walter Day and J.B. Filiao were the first black board members elected to the Durham Central Labor Union. Both men were black and pro-union. This helped bring together different groups of people to build a broad coalition that could secure political wins. Throughout the 1960s, pro-labor and racially progressive candidates were elected to the Durham City Council. And on a larger scale, in 1963, Labor and Black voting blocs united to elect a new mayor, R. Wenzel Grabrick, who would go on to expand union employment opportunities and work toward full integration in Durham. These successes in achieving political power in Durham set a precedent for what united labor and civil rights movements could accomplish in the workplace and in boycotts yet to come. Expanding our focus from tobacco to agricultural work in general, over the 20th century, there's a shift in who was doing this work. In the earlier parts of the 20th century, most farm workers were African Americans. Currently, this demographic has changed so that 92% of farm workers in North Carolina are Hispanic. And in many ways, they've inherited the exclusions and the racist laws we discussed earlier. Another one to add to the mix is the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. This policy established minimum wage, overtime pay, and child labor protections to prevent children from being exploited. However, 
agricultural workers were largely exempt from this policy in order to get Southern politicians to sign on to the plan. Although this act was passed when African Americans were the majority of the agricultural workforce, Hispanic farm workers, who were now the majority of agricultural workers, experienced the impact of this. In the years since this policy passed, some improvements have been made for farm workers, but they're really the bare minimum. Some of that progress includes improved housing standards and more legal protections when employers violate the law. For the over 1 million farm workers in the U.S., these reforms are nowhere near enough. Farm workers aren't protected if they strike, which means they don't have the power to retaliate against unjust working conditions like other workers. And since oftentimes their employers control their visa and housing standards, a seasonal neglect with limited options for recourse. In North Carolina, over 150,000 farm workers are the foundation of a $70 billion farming industry. The average yearly income for a farm worker in North Carolina is $11,000. To illustrate this astronomical difference in wealth, North Carolina leads the nation in sweet potato production. For farm workers who make this possible, their income of $11,000 a year is earned by being paid one penny for every pound of sweet potatoes they pick. Farm workers pick 7,000 pounds a day. Practices we would never expect to see in other fields are protected by law for farm workers. In North Carolina, children as young as six years old can legally work in North Carolina fields outside of school hours. Justin Flores, a former flock official, describes the demographic transition within agricultural work in the U.S. and the victories that farm workers have had in advancing their rights. Racial segregation, a lack of political power that black workers have, now uh, the same holds true for Hispanic workers. You know, agricultural labor is an area of labor that's been left out of most labor reforms and most labor protections, and that's largely because most of the labor laws that still exist today were passed when the Democrats needed Southern Democratic votes. The deal struck during that time was for the, the Southern Dixiecrats or Democrats who were segregationists uh, would vote in favor of these labor protections so long as they would exclude the majority of black workers in their region. That workforce has largely changed to Mexican and Central American, mostly either undocumented or guest workers coming up to work on a visa, which pretty much exclusively means non-voting. Despite legislative obstacles... Farm workers have fought for the protections afforded to other workers. In 1999, Flock mounted a campaign against an industry giant, Mount Olive Pickle Company. Their drive would revolutionize the relationship between growers, the term used for the people who own the farms, and farm workers. At the time, Mount Olive Pickle Company was just a huge purchaser of, of cucumbers in the region. And like most companies, just told growers, we don't care if you pay your workers well, we don't care if you have good housing, we don't care what labor practices you have. As long as you have low price, high quality cucumbers, then we'll continue to buy your produce. 
And so you know, our membership started highlighting the abuses that were happening uh, all over North Carolina in the cucumber industry and really putting the blame where it belongs at the top of the supply chain. So eventually launched a, a boycott of Mount Olive Pickle Company all over the U.S. Uh, to get Mount Olive Pickle Company to the table. And after five years of boycotting and debating publicly and back and forth and, and lots of excuses about why uh, Mount Olive Pickle uh, Company did come to the table and a brokered agreement that uh, our members to this day are using on a daily basis, the first collective bargaining agreement uh, in agricultural history in North Carolina, uh, really represents a historic win for farm workers who now for the first time have a grievance procedure just cause termination and discipline, the right to return, the right to complain without fear of retaliation, that, that really represents a, a historic win. The legacy of the successful Mount Olive boycott fuels the current views boycott. And in this ongoing campaign, where Flock demands that Reynolds come to the table who ensure that the farm workers who produce tobacco are safe at their jobs and are able to freely negotiate their contracts. And so, the black women who sat at their machines picking tobacco leaves by hand passed down the spirit of racially marginalized workers facing down giants. Pioneering new horizons in cigarette design. Responding to an ever-changing consumer environment. One of the most dramatic advances in the history of the tobacco industry. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1860. That was the day that Abraham Lincoln was elected 16th president of the United States. When Lincoln came to office, the nation was deeply divided on the question of slavery. By December 20th, South Carolina had seceded from the United States. Less than a month later, Confederate soldiers fired on Fort Sumter in South Carolina. With those shots, it became clear the issue of slavery would be settled by a civil war. The first year of the war was not going well for the Union. In December 1861, President Lincoln sat down to pen his annual message to Congress. In 1934, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt renamed that annual message the State of the Union. The speech still goes by that name today. By all accounts, the State of the Union was very grim in 1861. Eleven states had seceded and were at war with the Union. Lincoln's long message to Congress included a summary of the war as well as foreign relations. But it ended with Lincoln's thoughts about the nature of work and labor in the United States. It included some of the most famous words ever uttered by a sitting president about labor. Lincoln wrote, Labor is prior to and independent of capital. Capital is only the fruit of labor and could have never existed if labor had not first existed. Labor is superior of capital and deserves much the higher consideration. Lincoln ended his address by noting that the war that embroiled the nation would have a profound impact not just on the current generation fighting. He wrote that the conflict would shape the vast future of the nation. Lincoln was felled by an assassin's bullet. He did not live to see that vast future after the Civil War. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com.
That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to the NC Labor History Revealed podcast, a new podcast by North Carolina's Labor Federation. We've got a link to it in the show notes. Music today was Tobacco Blues by Bluesland with the Cold Sweat Horns. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time. Yeah.